Okay, <clears throat> good morning. Boy, this crazy COVID stuff seems to be changing our situations day by day, huh? So it's a fresh invitation to trust God and to believe that he's at work doing uh, things that only he can do. All right, we're back to Hosea this morning. A couple notes on where we have been in our study. We've seen that Hosea is a a kind of morality play, you might say, if you remember anything from high school literature about uh, medieval morality plays and how they taught people. Uh, Well, Hosea is kind of like that. It's not just a word... Uh, a written word or a spoken word that he brings to the people of Israel, but it's a drama that he lives out. He lives it out himself. His own story of uh, love and betrayal and indeed of redemption. And in that, the people of Israel who observe this and know Hosea, know his circumstances, are seeing this lesson played out of their own relationship with Yahweh. Last week we began to look at the names of his children, which are, which are part of this drama. Huh? And uh, we looked at the, at the first two kids, a boy named Jezreel. Jezreel was a place of judgment. It was a place where Jehu, a, uh, a very violent general who was nonetheless zealous for the things of God, uh, Jehu brought judgment on the house of Ahab and ended that dynasty, that four-generation dynasty, uh, in the valley of Jezreel. That's where one of uh, the king's palaces was, or, or residences, anyway. So call him Jezreel because just as Jehu brought judgment on the house of Ahab, now four generations after Jehu, it's all going to happen again because Israel hasn't learned the lessons that God judges idolatry. He judges Baal worship. They haven't learned that. Judgment is going to fall again. Call him Jezreel. And then there's a daughter born uh, who is strangely called Lo-Ruhamah which means no compassion, no pity, no mercy, no more love for Israel. The time for judgment has come. Uh, Delay is no longer going to be part of the picture. God's not going to wait to see if Israel turns back. Uh, The word has been now declared. The time has come for judgment. No more compassion. Today, we want to look at that third uh, child who was born, another boy, and uh, we're going to read about that, and I think the big message here in the third child is that the covenant is now dissolved, that covenant that God made with the people when he brought them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, Moses received the law, that's dissolved. So we'll read from verse 2. 
When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, not compassionated. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. What solemn words. Not my people. How, you know, how do we understand what's going on here? Well, we've got to come back to the idea that Israel, in following after the Baals, in worshiping the Chaos, remember the northern kings had established two worship sites, one in Dan up in the north and one further south below Samaria uh, in Bethel. But both of them in the northern kingdom to break this pattern of Israelites making pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship in Solomon's temple. <clears throat> they want to, in effect, keep Israel's devotion in the north. So they've erected golden calves, which seems to be tied in with the Baal worship that has also resurfaced in the family of Jehu. Now that's not a new thing for Israel, right? We noted last week this, this pattern of being attracted to Canaanite religion. We see it already in the Exodus when Israel first comes out of Egypt and they journey up the Sinai Peninsula, they come to Mount Sinai, and there God gives his law. He gives his covenant stipulations to the people. And uh, Moses goes up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law and the two tables of stone. And during that time, believe it or not, the people say, where is this guy Moses? What's taking him so long? Israel, make us gods to go before us. And uh, they talk to Moses' brother Aaron, and he makes a calf idol, which they are worshiping as Moses comes down off the mountain. And you remember the story when he realizes what is taking place in his anger he breaks the tables of stone 
very symbolic gesture here, right? It's not just Moses' anger, it's what he does with the tablets. He breaks them because he realizes that the covenant is already smashed, it's broken, because the people of Israel have violated the first principle of the covenant. You remember how the covenant starts? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. What's the first requirement? You shall have no other gods before you. First thing, out of the block, right away, the covenant is broken. They violated its basic stipulations and Moses, realizing that, breaks the tablets and then God threatens to disown the people. Moses, you lead these people up to, to the land of uh, milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. You're on your own. That interesting dialogue, and Moses said, no, Lord, you, you, you can't stand us up like this. What are people going to say? And so God relents, and Moses gets a new copy of the law. But now, centuries later, They're back to worshiping calves. And so the name of the third child is Lo-Ami, not my people. In this, Yahweh revokes the basic covenant blessing. What is that? Well, it's relationship with God. Because here's what he says to the people when he first sends Moses back in Egypt. Here's the promise. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. In Leviticus, he says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. There's the the fundamental aspect of this covenant relationship. Israel is the people of God, and God is their God. But that's going to change, or it has changed. That's what this third child says. Lo ami. Every time time Hosea calls his kids in for dinner, right? (laughs) There's the reminder. All the neighbors know this. What a strange name for your children. Not loved. Not my people. Over and over again. Will they get it? Will they understand? What a harsh judgment. And of course, it is a harsh judgment that's going to come upon them in a very short time. That whole northern kingdom is gone. Not my people. But now the rest of these verses in chapter 1. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come out of the land. They will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. 
Say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, my loved one. Now, just before we go further off this page, look at that last verse, verse 11, and the first verse of chapter 2. And notice what is happening here. This is just remarkable. They will come up out of the land. Judah and Israel will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. That's the name of the first son, right? And do you sense what has happened here? Jezreel, earlier in chapter 1, is a word of judgment. The judgment that Jehu visited upon Ahab's household is now going to fall on Jehu's household because the people have turned back to idolatry. And it's going to be the end of the north. But now, the Lord says, great will be the day of Jezreel. And and I think what what he's doing is he's playing on the name Jezreel because you know what Jezreel means? It means God plants. You might say God is going to grow a new Israel. Or, depending how we understand this statement, will come up out of the land. Land can be earth. Huh? <laughs> Israel in its deadness, no more the people of God, is promised here along with Judah to come up out of the earth because great will be the day when God plants. It's going to be better than my garden, right? My garden I plant, I get weeds, but... God's going to plant, and Israel and Judah are going to come up. And, verse 1 of chapter 2, say to your brothers, say to your brothers, Judah and Israel, my people, the same folks to whom the prophet in his own family has been saying, lo, Ah, me, not my people. Say to my people, my people. (laughs) Say to your brothers, rather, my people. And to your sisters, Ruhamah. Not low Ruhamah, unloved, but say to your sisters, loved. So in this extraordinary thing, what I call the great reversal, Right in this chapter, after all these words of judgment, suddenly, all three of these names are changed and turned in a positive direction. This is a most remarkable passage. So let's think about this great reversal going back to uh, actually verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. Now let's take that apart. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anything from the past? Well, it should. (laughs) Don't forget Genesis and that great story of Abraham. And, And we mentioned in our introduction a couple weeks ago that Hosea is thoroughly saturated with with the book of Genesis. 
and Hosea knows and thinks about the Abraham story. Abraham, the friend of God, the one to whom God made extraordinary promises. For example, in Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. So what are we doing in Hosea in this great reversal? After all these words of judgment, no more compassion, no more pity, not my people. God says, Hosea says, but remember Abraham. Remember the promise that I made to him. That your descendants will be as the sand on the seashore. Remember that. Why? Because as unbelievable and as impossible as it may sound, that promise still holds. Because that promise still holds, then there is this possibility of reversal even for people under judgment. Israel and Judah, that's what it says, right? The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will again be Ami, my people. And there's two things that, that are really significant here that are stressed. They will be one people. They will come together. And this one people, well, let, let's pick up the verse before we go on to the one king. But, but here's what verse 11 says. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited Remember, there's been a civil war. There's been a rupture within Israel. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Only two tribes maintain their faithfulness to David, who is the model of the true king in Israel. All the rest are gone. And Hosea's vision is that that's never been right, and that in the great reversal that God is going to bring, that will also be overcome. So there will no longer be two peoples, there will be one people. The people of Judah, the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader. Now, who, who can that be? <laughs> it's got to be the house of David, because in Hosea's understanding, there is only one le legitimate kingship. All the northern kings are illegitimate. So it's got to be the house of David. They'll appoint one leader, They'll come up out of the land. Great will be the day of Jezreel. So one people, one leader, that is one king. And that's made explicit at the end of chapter 3. It says, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. <clears throat> and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, when it says they come to David their king, <clears throat> we need to understand that. David's been gone for two centuries. 
but this is a way of talking about the coming Messiah who will be, as the New Testament says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is David's greater son and descendant uh, who, the later story tells us, is Jesus of Nazareth. But this is a remarkable statement of reversal and hope and encouragement that comes right on the heels of this terribly heavy message of judgment. God will turn everything around. That's how the story flows out. Exactly how that's going to play out, we're not sure. In the New Testament, you you don't have much discussion of this. Although, we do need to think about this, because we've been learning from interpreting the Old Testament, that we always have to ask, where does this story take us? As it begins to unfold or continues to unfold, what new things does God surprise us with? And right at this point, there's a a remarkably important thing we need to pick up from the New Testament. So let's ask this question, what is the larger story about this idea of my people? The not my people who become my people. What's the larger fulfillment of that? Well, we get two places in the New Testament where that is laid out very explicitly, actually with a reference back to the very passage we're looking at in Hosea which shows us that the New Testament writers were reading these prophets to understand what was happening in their own day. So, you get that uh, interesting and difficult section in the book of Romans, Romans 9 to 11, where Paul, uh, as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, right, one of the two southern tribes, Paul is trying to wrestle with something that he says gives him constant sorrow of heart. And his constant sorrow is that his own people, who for centuries had the promise of a coming descendant of David, a promise they were looking for, those very people, when the Messiah came, rejected him. And Paul is trying to get his head around that. And so what he says in effect in Romans 9 is, you know, maybe God had some bigger purpose. That in his sovereignty and wisdom, he could actually take Israel's unbelief and rebellion and work it into his greater plan. So in Romans 9, that's what he lays out. Verse 23, he says, What if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. 
Now, look what he does with the Old Testament. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my beloved one who is not my loved one. Now, how do we make sense of this? Has Paul misunderstood Hosea? I mean, Hosea is telling us that a day is coming when God is going to gather together Israel and Judah and reunite them following the Messiah, right? And, and whether they're from Judah or Israel, the not my people are going to become his people again. Paul says, I, I think, Paul understands that. He knows what Hosea is talking about, but I think Paul is saying, as this story is unfolding, the not my people becomes much bigger than Hosea and the other prophets of the Old Testament would ever have dreamed. Because God's purpose in all of this mystery of Israel's turning aside and falling under judgment, God's purpose is one which has a universal scope. That God is going to go to all of the not my people. Not just Jews, not just Israelites, but all those desperately wicked and rebellious Pennsylvania Dutchmen. Some of you are laughing, but you know it's true, right? To all those peoples, as the book of Revelation says, from every people, every nation, every language, God is going to draw not my people into covenant community with himself that he would be their God and they would be his people. And Paul, I think, now reading Hosea in the light of the coming of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, Paul says there is something here, as, as he says in Ephesians, beyond all that we could ask or imagine. And then there is, uh, then there's Peter writing to a Jewish and Gentile church. 1 Peter 2.10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right out of Hosea. <clears throat> Once you were lo-ami, if you want to plug that Hebrew name in again, once you were lo-ami, now you are ami. Once you were lo-ruhama, now you are ruhama. What an extraordinary understanding of the gospel growing right out of the Old Testament prophets 
long before the fulfillment takes place, God was preparing a message for people like us, a message of invitation to come, to turn our hearts back to the Lord. What difference does this make? Well, I've been thinking about that this week. Just a a number of things I want to leave with you. First, if you are a follower of the Messiah, if, if your faith is in Jesus and what he did in his death and his resurrection, if that describes you, <clears throat> then you are part of history's greatest story and the world's greatest family. That's who you are. That's your identity. That's far beyond all those other little identity markers that we take for ourselves, right? Now, I'm a teacher. I'm a craftsman. I'm a business leader. I'm a family person. Uh, I'm artistic. I'm not artistic. all those, all those markers, I've had a successful career, my family is doing well, beyond all of that, this is a fundamental understanding of who we are that needs to shape our lives, that I need to remind myself of every day, that I am part of this big story, this centuries-long story. And that by God's gracious choice and invitation, I am now one of his people. That's so important, that sense of personal identity. Second thing that stands out to me is that God's word does not fail. Especially his promise to seek our good. Here's Hosea in the midst of national decline, living daily with the depressing names of his children, with the unfaithfulness of his wife, the coming judgment on the nation. In the midst of all that, he has a promise. Nevertheless, the children of Israel will be like the sand of the seashore that cannot be counted. God's word doesn't fail. It may seem at times like it has failed or that it's got to fail. If you had to live with bringing that message of doom as Hosea did for years and years, you might think, yes, God's word has failed. Some of you know my brother-in-law right now is in a really tough situation that uh, uh, he's had all kinds of surgeries and now his bone marrow is not producing blood properly so he's getting transfused twice a week and uh, in two weeks he goes into the hospital and they're going to kill off all his bone marrow and try a transplant. And uh, he and my sister who, I mean... They're strong believers, but they've just said it doesn't, it seems like God isn't around. 
difficult times. Some of you going through difficult times. And in those times, it can seem to us like God's word has failed. That his promise to bless his people is for other people, but not for us. But the reality is that his word never fails. That his promises are always good. And and the challenge of faith for us is to hold on to this God even in the midst of that turmoil, in the midst of the storms. And the storms come. But God's word is faithful and, uh, and it works out through the centuries. That's what we see in this story. And then let's close with this. God's love is the final word for those whose heart is turned toward him. Judgment in Scripture is never the final word to those who turn toward God. They may experience some judgment in their lives. I have, you probably have too, right? We may experience some of God's judgment. But it's never the last word from God. If our hearts are turned toward Him, which is that idea of repentance we talk about from time to time, right? If we're people who have learned even in experiencing God's discipline, if we've learned to turn back, then judgment's never the last word. Hosea looks forward to a day when Israel and Judah will come together and they will seek the Lord and they will seek David their king. And God will say to them, my people, God will speak mercy and grace to them. And the same is true of us. Judgment is not the final word. Love is the final word. Unless, of course, and this is the sad reality, unless, of course, we persist in turning our backs on God. As we've said many times before, God does not crash our party. He will not force himself upon those who consistently reject him. And this is why whenever we look at messages of judgment in the Bible, and along with that look at the words of mercy and grace, that that it always comes to a place of invitation where I personally have to ask myself once again, is my heart open to God? Am I a person who turns to God? It's not a question of whether I'm a person who sins or not. (laughs) That's given, huh? For me and for you. We are people who sin. We are people who turn toward idols so easily, just as Israel did. 
But are we people who in the end of the day turn our hearts back toward God and open ourselves to his gracious invitation to come, to trust in Jesus, to recognize Jesus as the one who laid down his life, who suffered exile on our behalf outside the camp, who paid the price, the price of judgment that was due to me. The invitation is always there. The more we understand of the story, the more powerful it becomes to pull our hearts back to the Lord. So, are you one of those people today that has already and is currently, day by day, turning your hearts toward him and hearing his gracious words, my people, those that I love? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this astounding story of your patient love for Israel, for Judah, and for all of us Gentile outsiders. Thank you that your love paid the ultimate price that was due. You gave your son and Jesus gave his life that we might be your people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to those he gave the right to be called the children of God even to those who believe in his name. Lord, may all of us today, all who hear this message, be people who believe in Jesus, your son, and follow him. We ask it in his name. Amen.